Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. The title of this episode isn't accurate. Ireland won't be independent by the time we're done, or at least not all of it. But unfortunately, calling an episode something like a centuries-long struggle both to define and achieve a variant of independence with mixed success is a really bad way to get people to listen to a topic. So instead, we'll start things off by figuring out just how Ireland got in a position where it felt it had something it needed to become independent from. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Phil Downey. Hello. Hey, Phil. It's nice to have you back. Uh, how many is this? Five times? Oh, Six times? I'm starting to lose count, which I don't is know, kind of fi- fine by me, to be honest. Am but... I still in the lead? You, this will put you into the lead again. Excellent. Millie's going to be upset. <laughs> and well, he's going to be on here very shortly. I can almost guarantee it. That's the way it goes. Um, that's how I keep getting you guys back. <laughs> Miller, because he's chasing you. You, because you're sticking it to Miller, I guess. Well, I mean, I- I've held the title for so long. It's, I just got to keep defending it now. Right. You've either been in the lead or held that as a tie. Yeah. Since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an all right tradition. I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. Yep. We are here today to talk about, I'm titling this Irish Independence. Okay. I need to put like 18 asterisks after that one. <laughs> which which one? Which Irish Independence? Because really what we're here today to talk about is oppression, mm-hmm. uh, colonization. Of course. Um, I mean, how can you talk about anything close to uh, the UK without talking about colonization? Well, of course. Britain specifically. But, you know, more specifically, we're, we're kind of talking about the story of uh, an oppressed people living within a very powerful society, mm-hmm. which is an interesting perspective and one that we don't always get a lot of in history. There's the whole written by the victors, et cetera, et cetera, all of that nonsense, right? Of course. But Stands there's, you know, while, while, you know, there's obviously exceptions to that, there's some truth to it in that there's certainly louder voices than others uh, that get heard. And a lot of times uh, a culture like... Uh, Irish culture is not necessarily heard as loudly. So, yeah, we're going to be talking a lot about both political oppression and religious oppression pretty much as a standard theme throughout all of this. And it's something I really want to keep in mind is, you know, we, we kind of culturally in North America know a lot about British history or specifically English history just through osmosis. It kind of comes to us, right? Yeah, it's, it's um, just part of the deal. It's just part of the deal. Former colony and all that. And... Ireland, while ostensibly part of all that, mm-hmm. isn't necessarily included in that glorious 
English, you know, Britannia ruling the waves, etc. Yeah. You know, it's not always, you know, the things actually happening in Ireland or to Irish people isn't always part of that package. So, I mean, I do know a thing or two about this. Uh, I don't know the story. Sure. But I have some Irish background myself. Right. Uh, three of my four grandparents are can trace their backgrounds to Ireland. Right. Uh, my grandpa grew up in a very Irish family. My nan and my pop were from Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. uh, their parents or their parents' parents were actually from Ireland. Right. So, I mean, it's always been something that I've been kind of interested in. And right. I kind of perk up anytime I'm talking or I was talking in university. I took a bunch of global studies classes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it came up about the, the whole thing of otherness and how uh, the Irish people were often considered others yeah it's this interesting thing in in specifically canada and the united states where you know there's there's an ongoing conversation and we don't get need to get into current events but there's an ongoing conversation about what it means to be a, a real canadian or a real american if you want to put it in kind of crass terms and and how the uh the immigrant experience fits into all of that yeah but at one point the the definition of what it was to be like the you know the a, a typical canadian or or american was like english yeah and then you know english and scottish were kind of okay but but the irish were considered other and uh, the italians were considered other and then you start getting people from poland and ukraine and all of a sudden irish is okay and, yeah. and it, like as 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 uh, as those countries expand their the, the range of, of immigrants that are coming to them, the uh, the range of normalcy also uh, changes and adapts to to meet that. But that means at one point to be Irish in one of these uh, countries was extremely alienating and was uh, very similar to any immigrant experience you would see now. You know, uh, uh, there there would be uh, uh, enclaves of of just Irish people living together because they needed to look after their own or you know having trouble getting uh, employment anywhere but you know through their own hard work things like that it's 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 going to be a very real part of what we're we're talking about a little further down the line we're not quite uh, at the at the whole emigration stage of things uh, to start off but of course no it's 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 very very much a part of being irish is is being away from ireland there's there's many more people that trace their ancestry to ireland outside of that country than within it yeah which is a little crazy considering it's just this small island mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and actually has quite a small population really when you get down to it yeah let's come to that one a little bit more organically let's not jump ahead too far <laughs> of course um this is a Phil episode. That means that you're going to be reaching back into the sands of time for the beginnings on this one, I'm assuming. Obviously. I tried to pick a beginning that would work and make sense, but I have a feeling it's not going to hold that fast. Uh, I'll have questions, I'm sure. <laughs> we are going to start off with uh, about the time of the Norman invasion into England. Mm -hmm. uh, 1066, William the Conqueror, all of that. The Normans were French. Uh, way back, they were actually um, Danish, but... Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> hey, you'll, you're still working your way through the backlog, right? Wait yeah. Until you get to the Viking episode, you're going to learn a thing or two. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. In, anyways, but at this point, they were culturally French, right? And so they came across, they conquered a bunch of Saxon uh, kingdoms and, and established a foothold. Ireland's still kind of just sitting there at the same time. Ireland had never really been subjugated by the Romans the way that the rest of, you know, the island of Britain had been subjugated. Sure. Maybe we need to... Uh, establish some terms here before we go too much further because <laughs> yeah. we're going to get very complicated with countries and geography yeah maybe and... not everyone has seen uh cgp gray's guide to the uk cgp gray's guide to the uk is a very useful resource for some of the things that we're going to be talking about here but 
the island of Britain is the big one. Yep. And Ireland is the smaller island to its west. Yes. So in Brit or in Roman times, you would have been calling uh, the the larger island Britannia. Okay. And the smaller one Hibernia. Okay. The Romans uh, had had a pretty good established presence in Britannia up until you know the Hadrian's Wall and then a little bit further north eventually. But yep, I remember know, there, was, there was still the wilds of Scotland up there. Yep. But other than a couple of like kind of coastal footholds, they never they never really broke into Hibernia. The people there were apparently just very violent. They had a really hard time suppressing them, and there wasn't there didn't really seem to be anything there of great enough value to the Romans that they thought it was worth invading and conquering. So it mostly got left alone, mainly from external reasons. But, you know, by the time of William the Conqueror, it's still just kind of this patchwork of, of uh, Gaelic uh, clans. Mm-hmm. Again, terminology-wise, Gaelic is kind of like a family of, of uh, languages. So yeah. specifically, they're speaking Irish as opposed to Scottish Gaelic. And all of this is a subset of the, the Celtic ethnic group, I suppose. So question the first. Yep. And I don't know if this you'll even get to this, but this isn't something I've... If I knew it, it was a long time ago. Sure. How did the Celtic groups get to where they ended up? Like, why why did they split? That's prehistory stuff. Yeah. So we don't really have a great understanding of how. Is it the standard uh, humans like to invent boats thing? I mean, basically, yeah. Generally, in that area of the world, they're going to be following the fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is generally what you'd be chasing after as a as a prehistoric settler to Ireland. Yeah. But again, that's that's speculation, and this is far out of the realm of history and into the realm of archaeology. And yeah, the two intersect, but only to limited uh, yeah. effectiveness when it comes to history. So th- this is a matter of, for all intents and purposes, always been there. Obviously, not always been there, but you know, we we can't really tell their story in any meaningful way. What's the name of this Irish island again? Oh, like uh, what they call Ireland. The, the the Romans called it Hibernia. Hibernia. Yeah. Was Hibernia engaged in any trade at this point? Yeah, limited trade. A- anywhere that was even remotely close to the Roman Empire engaged in some trade. There, it was just sense. far too wealthy not to. That checks out. So, what contact they did have with Hibernia was generally through trade. And they didn't have a terrible amount to offer, which is one of the reasons they knew that there wasn't really anything to bother invading. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but anyways, we're, again, reaching way back past my limit. Look, that's what I do. I know, man. <laughs> I, I knew exactly what I was getting into. This is why I read that far back. <laughs> one of these days, I'm going to catch you off guard again. There's this patchwork of kingdoms in there. Every once in a while, there's a high king of Ireland, but it's not a permanent position. Like, it's not kind of a hereditary thing. Yeah, you kind of uh, have to different... Sorry? You have to earn it? A little bit, yeah. And and different kingdoms, or different kings of different kingdoms would be the, the high king, depending on sort of the... It, it was kind of like by, through proclamation, basically. Right. The, the king of one kingdom uh, might have been high king at one point, and then the one to follow it could be from a completely different kingdom, if that makes any sense. And at times, there wasn't even necessarily a high king of Ireland, depending on the political climate, depending on the players involved, all of that. So fairly loose is mm-hmm. kind of the, the impression I'm trying to convey here. What kind of lifestyle did these folks have at the time? Uh, fairly pastoral. Yeah. Um, it, it was pretty, you know, I, I don't want to give the impression that there was nothing going on there, but um, it wasn't a, a, a an overly complex society. There was a, a limited writing system. Uh, a lot of their cultural cues would be uh, somewhat similar to what you would see in, in kind of Celtic culture in France that was uh, stomped out by the, the Romans. But mm-hmm. 
a lot of the sort of Irish cultural touchstones that you would think of uh, at least have some roots in this time period. So, you know, fairly, fairly rich, don't get me wrong, but they didn't make incredibly large cities or anything like that. It was mostly fairly pastoral, mm-hmm. which suited them fine. I mean, that's that's kind of what the the island lends itself to in a lot of ways. Okay, next question. Sure. Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's just a word, not really a question, but when yeah. did, when was that invented? That's a great question. I, I did not look into the history of Irish whiskey when I was doing this. I, I'm, I like... The the Celts are, seem to be known for their whiskey, right? We, sure. We've got Scotch and we've got Irish whiskey. They're yeah. a well-known phenomenon. Yeah. I'm just wondering when that came about. And... Tell you what, I'll, I'll look it up on a break and we'll talk about it later because it doesn't really <laughs> matter when we talk about it. We That's can still true. talk about it. All right, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't think to check that. You got me. Did it. <laughs> <laughs> can we please move on now? Yes, go ahead. <laughs> so... The Normans have set their, you know, little foothold in, in England. They're working away at the locals, trying to expand their power base. And something really interesting comes along. There has been exactly one English pope in all of history. Okay. Adrian IV. And one thing that I neglected to mention about Ireland in this uh, sort of pre-Norman period is that it had been converted to Catholicism. Hadn't? Had. Had been. St. Patrick and all that. Yes. That's like 5th century stuff. Okay. But the thing is, because it was so isolated, they kind of went their own way a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ireland had also been fairly, like, it had interacted quite a bit with the the Vikings because they were so mobile. They came to Ireland rather than the other way around. Right. And one of the wealthiest institutions in Ireland at the time was the church. However, it was kind of more modeled around, like, a, a monastic setup, lots of, like, monks uh, yeah. in, in monasteries rather than, like, a, a diocesan system. Like, the church would prefer kind of a hierarchical, top-down bishops and then yeah. local clergy and all of that. A little bit more decentralized. Yeah. And, you know, there were some not necessarily completely heretical things going on in Ireland. <laughs> But like they kind of came up with some of their their own customs that weren't necessarily completely in line with the Church of Rome in the in, in the Middle Ages. Again, nothing nothing that was not repairable, but it just things like yeah, there there were there was a, a fairly robust tradition of people kind of becoming like full on reclusive hermits as part of their spiritual growth, which wasn't really as much a thing in mainland Europe. Is there? Do we know why? it's it's a it's the the idea of finding god in solitude i have i have a slight anecdote here sure my, my life plan is to retire in a in an irish cabin somewhere and mm-hmm. just you know I, like i didn't know this was a thing but that literally may have been go your be blood a, for 15 centuries go be go me go be a hermit in ireland is literally like one of my retirement options here <laughs> that, <I've been laughs> that does sound towards. amazing but no they had i mean it's it, it was one it's genetic yeah <laughs> it's, it's one thing to kind of like go off and be on your own it's another thing to do what some of them would do which was basically build a boat out of branches and skins and just set off into the ocean and hope that god would take care of you oh boy yeah not quite what i had in mind <laughs> well it, it worked out more often than you might think okay <laughs> so the pope had he was english so he knew that this was going on yeah he didn't love what was going on there, but he also saw Ireland as like a place of potential rather than a place that needed to be brought into line. Of course. Necessarily. And so based on some very old kind of Roman po- proclamations that basically deeded every island off the coast of Europe to the church to do with it what it willed, he decided and proclaimed in a papal bull in 1155 that Ireland should be brought under the jurisdiction of the English king. 
at this time Henry II. So he gave Henry II the authority to bring bring Ireland back into the fold, basically. And Henry II went, okay, <laughs> I'm kind of do I'm kind of busy doing my own things here. This is a little inconvenient for me right at the moment, but I'll definitely keep that in mind. Stuck it in his back pocket because he's like, oh, I might want another island. Who knows? Yep. The amount of territory that was actually held by the English crown at this point in time is a lot bigger than a lot of people realize because Normandy was a pretty good chunk of France. They didn't lose that when they took England, right? Yeah. So they have England, they have a big chunk of France, and they would actually gain another even larger chunk of France uh, before they eventually lost it all. Right. It was a pretty serious amount of land to uh, administer, and they didn't necessarily have a ton of time for just doing whatever they felt like. Yeah. But in kind of a twist of fate, at the same time in Ireland, one of the kings of, of uh, a kingdom called Linster, I'm going to be using the anglicized version of Irish names. I wish I had had the time to learn how to do these properly. And then I realized that I would probably spend more time learning Irish pronunciation than the actual history of it, because it's really, really, really tricky. Yeah, so, I, I did three days of lessons on oh Duolingo boy. for Gael- Irish Gaelic. Yeah, I gave up. It's, it's too tough. It's it's just very complicated, and there's a lot of there's a lot of difficult sounds in there. Again, I I, I do feel bad that I'm I'm resorting to the English uh, pronunciations, but here we are. Yeah. Um. It's it's way more complicated than you think, and it's not just some easy side endeavor. Yeah. Like it takes some doing. I I pulled up some YouTube videos to try and listen to some pronunciations, and I went, well, I feel like I'll do more damage in trying <laughs> than I will in just using the English names. Yeah. Um. So, anyways, this king, uh, Dermot McMurrow king of leinster was being exiled by the new high king he had been kind of protected by the previous high king who he got along with very well um there was a new high king in town uh rory o'connor who uh had been crowned in 1156 so just the year after this papal bull yeah and apparently dermot mcmurrow had been up to some shenanigans like a good 10 15 years before Uh oh i uh the, the details were a little bit hazy but it involved like kidnapping someone's wife and some other untoward things so you know you know just just things the kind of hijinks the kings get up to it's not super important what is important was that he was exiled by the high king yeah um which was a big deal politically the kind of thing that would happen in in ireland at this point in time but still pretty big deal mcmurrow decided that instead of just kind of rolling over and taking it he left the country and went straight for england and spent 11 years lobbying the normans for help in retaking his throne Hmm. And, you know, at first they were kind of ignoring him, and then he started getting kind of limited traction, and then he almost became something of a novelty in the Norman court. How so? It, it was just kind of a, a like a like a pet cause for some of these lords who were kind of like, yeah, sure, let's get McMurrow back on his on his throne. Like, I feel like they, we've done a good thing. Like, was he entertaining them or something? Like, how did he? I think he was appealing to the sense of impermanence that kind of goes along with being a a dynasty that's been in place less than a century in a hostile land Hmm. basically he's saying listen if you help me all of a sudden you have the allegiance of one of the five or six most powerful people in ireland i gotcha a little Uh, bit more backup for their newish regime yeah exactly they already have this papal bull in their back pocket saying like morally speaking that's basically theirs already yeah and they're kind of going like okay well maybe um, he finally meets with a, uh, a Norman noble uh, named uh, Richard de Clare. Uh, he was the second Earl of Pembroke, who had a pretty sweet nickname, which was Strongbow. <laughs> okay. And Strongbow went, you know what? Sure. 
I'll help you get your kingdom back. Pulled together an army and invaded Ireland. All right. First, uh, first knights hit the hit the hit the shores on, in 1167, but the 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 full force really picked up in 1169, and almost immediately, Strongbow and uh, McMurrow managed to take back Leinster and started pushing into other territories. McMurrow liked Strongbow so much that he actually uh, gave him his daughter's hand in marriage. Oh, here we go. Which is great. But it also means that now there's a Norman lord who is Irish royalty. Yep. And Leinster started getting more powerful and more powerful. Mm-hmm. And Henry decided he didn't love this. Yeah. He was concerned that Ireland would become sort of a parallel Norman kingdom running beside his own, and that he was looking at kind of some direct competition here. So he made contact with some of the other kings in Ireland, who basically said, tell you what keep Leinster at its historical borders, and we will offer you a newly created position known as Lord of Ireland, which is kind of like a semi, it's kind of a permanent version of that High King position where technically all of these kingdoms are under the High King of England. Right. Which wouldn't have necessarily been an unusual arrangement in, for example, the Holy Roman Empire, which was just a mess of principalities and kingdoms. Sure. So this wasn't necessarily completely unreasonable or unusual, but uh, Henry decided, yeah, that's that's worth it. And it's definitely worth keeping Strongbow in check because now I'm worried about this guy. Apparently he can run a mean invasion. <laughs> right. So by 1171, he was in Leinster to assert his dominance, given Strongbow a very friendly little <laughs> visit explaining to him exactly how the new arrangement of Ireland was going to work. And how did that go? Uh, fairly well, actually. I mean, I think Strongbow knew better than to push on this one. Sure. What did it take him, it taken him several years to do? Henry managed to do in a few months. Um, yeah. That... And I mean, he just couldn't bring to bear the number of troops that... It's a little sobering. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean... Henry did have the support of all of these other Irish kings, which is a big deal. Yeah. Five tends to be a pretty well-balanced number in general for things like this, and that's about the number of major kingdoms there were at this point in time. If one gets uppity, four can usually get it back under control. Makes sense. Uh, if, if two get uppity, usually three can do something about it. This title of Lordship of Ireland wasn't necessarily meant to be directly under the English crown, though. It was a title that sat kind of parallel to the the actual kingship and henry was kind of worried about combining the two too closely and so he decided to deal with that by giving the lordship to his youngest son john and obviously the crown goes to uh, the oldest son okay. um richard who's richard the lionheart yep problem being that through a series of events john ends up being king of england as well and at that point the two titles combine and they stay the same thing for a very long time after this Hmm. I mean, my exposure to this is mostly like... The Disney cartoon? Disney cartoon Robin yeah. Hood. <laughs> King John was... He's a very complicated figure in history. Apparently, personally speaking, he was not a very pleasant man. Mm-hmm. He was very quick-tempered. He was a little bit prone to holding a grudge. But he was also... a very skilled ruler 
his governance was was there's quite a good uh, quite a number of good things to be said for it the the main one that comes to mind was that he was the the king during the authorship of the magna carta Mm. which is the you know the foundation of the the relationship between the english crown and the state that basically everything since then has been built upon that's no mean feat there's actually a, a an Irish version of the Magna Carta that came uh, just after as well that had a, a similar effect of of uh, noting that the I mean the the main the main point to take home from the Magna Carta is that no one is above the law. So just because you're a noble doesn't mean that you can just go committing crimes willy nilly right. and not have have the law apply to you. So that's what the Irish version was doing as well, basically saying yeah, just because you're a king doesn't mean you can break laws and not have it affect you. So it's a pretty important milestone in kind of just the rule of law. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it's uh, I'd say it's fair for for the 13th century. I'll take it. Sure. Direct rule of Ireland was kind of impractical, though. Mm-hmm. It was easier to just kind of deputize somebody under this sort of uh, Lord of Ireland thing, and and really what it turned into was uh, almost a stewardship of Ireland, where the the King of England was kind of hands off. And families of heirs would actually uh, govern the the island and report back to the king about the goings on, so, rather than uh, any any sort of direct uh, rule. So, what happened to these five kingdoms after the Lord of Ireland was established? Some of them remained kingdoms, uh, but in in practice, they were kind of demoted to like provinces basically right with uh with the kings acting more like a like an earl or a duke would uh would be in a in a standard european uh hierarchy okay i i mean a lot of them had been kind of conquered at one point or another by the irish or by the english crown as well as uh as they had kind of maybe gotten a little bit out of hand and the might of the british army or english <laughs> army was brought against them to uh remind them who was the boss and you sure. don't really necessarily come away with that with a full kingdom anymore yeah it's interesting though because Ireland was given its own parliament in 1297. Basically, them going, you know what, you guys just take care of Irish stuff over there. We're we're going to take care of English stuff over here. Mm-hmm. We'll just like let you guys do your own thing. What we say goes. Like we still like overrule you, but it's not practical for you to come to us about every little thing. So, and 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 they gave them. This is this is uh, this is a concept that's going to keep coming back as we go through all of this. They gave them. Uh, a form of limited autonomy over their own governance right so even though he's still even though you still have an english king that's at the top Mm -hmm. he's not really asserting any real power even though technically where you look when you look at the structure of government power ultimately emanates from the king it's through this parliamentary body that is actually being you know is populated by irish people is voted for by a portion of the Irish population mm-hmm. and is concerned with Irish affairs, which people tend to like. Yep. Um, Local representation and all that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's important when you're this divided from the other portion of the body politic that we're talking about here and forms of like limited autonomy are something that crop up in all sorts of situations, often when two very different people uh, or peoples, I should say, occupy the same uh, political structure for example during the uh, the austro-hungarian empire the the hungarians basically said you know what we're not doing this in vienna anymore we're setting up our own little kingdom over here hmm. and there were two capitals or uh today the in, in both north ireland and in scotland there are what's known as devolved parliaments yes i've heard of those where it's essentially exactly what we're describing here they they, they have 
a very clear definition of what these local parliaments are able to govern over, even though that authority ultimately comes from the British Parliament in um, in London. Right. And the difference between that and something like, say, federation in, in Canada with the, 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 the federal level and the provincial level, or, or likewise in the, in the United States with the you know, state level uh, government and the federal government, yeah. the difference there is that for in a federation like we have, the responsibilities between the federal level and the state level or provincial level are mandated by the constitution with really clear guidelines as to which powers are held by which level of government. Whereas a devolved parliament or a devolved form of government is uh, legislated through one of those bodies and can be revoked unilaterally through that body without any constitutional change. Does that so, hold still? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. The parliament in Scotland or in North Ireland could be taken away at any point in time. It would be political suicide. But Yeah, that wouldn't go over well. Um, maybe a better way to think about it is like municipal governments. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in a constitution that says that there should be a municipal level of government. There's nothing that says that there should be mayors of towns. But that's a power that's put put forward by the state level or provincial level government saying like, listen, we don't care about garbage pickup bylaws. You guys deal with this. Right. Even though officially speaking those fall under provincial guidelines interesting they've just extended those powers through legislation mm-hmm. right and can revoke those powers at any time if they want never knew that yeah it's 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 kind of a fine line i know it's a little bit technical i suppose is the best way to put that but it's very important when you're talking about the way that your government works yeah, and I'm the kidding. way that the people who represent you in that government are uh granted power to actually make any real change yeah all of these English lords that kind of end up in Ireland after these little conquests and the kind of pushing out from Leinster initially and taking over these sort of insurgent bands of, of Irish people over the years, all of these places end up with English lords. But interestingly enough, a lot of them end up going going native, to use the term. There's there's a term that gets used uh, for a specific family, but for for these for these uh, these. Uh, nobles in general, which is uh, they became they became more Irish than the Irish. <laughs> they tended to adopt Irish manners of dress. They spoke the Irish language. They uh, became obsessed with Irish cultural practices. They would marry Irish uh, people. This sounds familiar. <laughs> they got very into being Irish, which is fine. It, I think it seems to be an infectious culture. <laughs> Like in a good way. People like... I'm just imagining some second Earl of Pembroke wearing a Kiss Me, I'm Irish shirt. Getting drunk off green beer. Absolutely. In the truest of Irish traditions. <laughs> no, it, it got so bad. And, and the, the... Well, bad is a relative thing here. But in the eyes of the English government, it got so bad that they actually tried to legislate Englishness. Wow. Uh, using something called the, the Statutes of Kilkenny in 1367, where they said that no Englishman may, you know, wear Irish clothing or speak the Irish language or marry an Irish person, which obviously was impossible to legislate or, or to enforce. Uh, this is one of those times where I wish it was a video podcast to catch the reaction of this I enforced mean, Englishness. It's it's silly, but let's keep in mind that the thing that they're worried about is this this uh parallel power right right and they're worried that they they're worried that ireland will become bigger and better than england i I get the concern it just seems like such a silly idea it is it really really is but then again a lot of the things we're going to be talking about are very very serious things that stem from very very silly ideas yeah so that's you know buckle in that's going to be the podcast man (laughs) we are going to fast forward a little bit okay 
because the 14th century is rough for everybody, like the entirety of Europe. Ireland is no exception, but the effect that it has on Ireland is a very isolating one just because it's so far from everybody else. Yeah. So the last topic I did was the Black Death, and we talk about the uh, terrible 14th century. The plague is one of the main things that goes bad, but it's not the only thing that goes bad. Okay. There's also a terrible famine uh, early in the 14th century. Uh-huh. As in, it killed millions of people. Yep. Um, it was very, very bad. Ireland got hit with the famine. It got hit by the plague. The the uh, Hundred Years' War started in the 1340s. They weren't immune to that. They were being recruited into the English army uh, to fight against the French. Mm-hmm. Hundred Years' War, basic, basic version is, remember all those French holdings I was talking about the Normans having in France? Yep. The French wanted them. <laughs> How about that? It took 117 years to settle. So yeah, it was very, very ugly. And then after it's done, the War of the Roses breaks out which is basically a culmination uh, between a uh, succession crisis. I think as in we've who talked becomes... about this one before. Uh, very briefly. It's, yeah. it's not something I've done a full topic on ever. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of complicated. Basically, they were trying to figure out who would be king next. They were doing this in the fallout of losing the Hundred Years' War. Yeah. Everyone was broke. Everyone was angry. And it ended with, again, long story short, with the foundation of the Tudor dynasty. Mm-hmm. When Henry VII who was a Lancaster, married a member of the York family and basically said, okay, well, everybody, we're done fighting now. And I mean, the, the Yorks had lost quite badly. So yeah, I guess they were. Okay. I have to, I have to interject. Sure. You mentioned a famine. Mm-hmm. How can we talk about famines in Ireland without me asking if this is where the potato thing comes from? The potato thing is going to come into effect mainly in the 19th century. Okay. There's going to be several famines that we talk about. This famine was a world uh, or, a, or a Europe-wide famine caused by uh, climate issues. Basically, it was really terrible crops, really cold winters combined with really wet summers, really bad growing conditions, really bad farming tactics at the time. Basically, what ended up happening was you were getting a, a, such a low crop yield that you had to start eating your planter seeds. Ooh. Yeah, it was bad. That's not good. And your draft animals, so the, the animals that pulled the plows and things like that, uh, would also need to be eaten for just survival. That's uh, that's rough. Recorded instances of cannibalism, children abandoned in the <laughs> in the woods to fend for themselves, old people voluntarily not eating anymore to let the young survive. Wow. Rough time. Uh, go listen to the last episode, I guess, if you want to hear more of that. It was a grim one. Yeah. it's Honestly, after after listening to the smallpox episode... I was like, that was, that was, I think, I think that's my favorite episode so far. I think the Black Death is a worthy successor to that one. Honestly, when I saw you were doing the Black Death, I almost like, I have not, I have not skipped ahead and just (laughs) listened to ones that seem specifically interesting or like appeal to me uh, specifically. I mean, Mm -hmm. I almost did it for the Black Death. Nice. I really, it was really tempting. It was good. So during the War of the Roses. Yes. The Fitzgeralds, who had been lords of Ireland for a while, it was a family that had been keeping the position for over a century at this point in time, uh, they backed the Yorks. The who? The Yorks. The okay. York family. I'm not familiar. The One of the families that was represented by a rose in the War of the Roses. It was a war between the York family and the Lancaster family. Okay. They backed the wrong ones. Mm-hmm. And Henry VII never really forgot that. He didn't really trust the Fitzgeralds, Fitzgeralds after that. And he kind of passed that along to his son, Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. uh, who also kind of kept one eye on the Fitzgeralds at all times. We have another little kind of confluence of events that come up at this point, namely that the head of the Fitzgeralds, who, by the way, was named Gerald. Uh, Yep. 
Okay. He was. I'm sorry. Was his middle name Fitz? I did not make this up. Fitz. I haven't. I haven't nailed it down yet. I keep meaning to look into it. I get the impression that Fitz is similar to Mick or Van. Oh. Uh, like a like a family and I don't style. Mean like. Oh, the prefix. I mean, yeah. Like, actually, like. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the impression that I've oh. been getting. But anyways, Gerald Fitzgerald had been called to London. There was uh, this whole complicated legal matter, and. Word got back to his son. Before he left, he was expecting to be, he was basically expecting to be executed for his crimes. He knew what Henry VIII thought about him. Yeah. There was this big dispute over some land issues. Uh, He wasn't sure that he was making it back home. So he deputized his son, uh, Thomas Fitzgerald, who was in his very early 20s at this time, Mm -hmm. basically said, look after things. Maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't. Jeez. And word got back to Thomas that Gerald had been executed. He actually hadn't been yet. Okay. But he was understandably upset. Right. This is going to end well. This is in 1535. Mm-hmm. Very important for context right now is that fifteen, the late 1520s through early 1530s is the English Reformation. Okay. So here's Thomas Fitzgerald, who, by the way, is known as Silken Thomas. Uh-huh. Why? You know, I never found out. That's a bit of an odd name. He's just so smooth. <laughs> Here's the situation that Thomas Fitzgerald is in right now. His family is in the royal family's bad books. Mm-hmm. He believes his father is dead. The monarch that he's supposed to be swearing fealty to, even though his family didn't actually support his rise to the throne, has just declared that he's splitting off from the the Catholic Church. Right. Ireland, still very deeply Catholic at this time. I mean, all of both Britain and Ireland are deeply Catholic at this point in time. But... Um, especially in, in Ireland at this point in time, he's looking at this going, okay, I have a heretic king who just killed my father. <laughs> a heretic king who just killed my father. All right. Yep. So he denounces him. Obviously. Declares his independence of the English th- uh, throne. Okay. And throws a revolt. Alrighty then. Now does his dad dead? <laughs> he supposedly, I think the official line was died of grief upon hearing of his fa- his son's uh, rebellious actions. Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, it's important to remember at this point in time just how big of a thing the English Reformation was for the Catholic Church. Right. The Pope isn't going to recognize the English monarch as legitimate again until 1766. It's going to be a while. And Ireland is deeply Catholic. Mm-hmm. So now not only do they have this issue of maybe a parallel uh, kingdom to them, they have a relig- uh, religiously opposed portion of their kingdom. Yeah. A deeply uh, committed religiously opposed portion of their kingdom. Yeah. And, you know, Fitzgerald goes to the Pope for support and he gets it. Henry VIII sees this as a threat to English sovereignty and rightfully so. He's got a, an entire kingdom revolting against him. Yep. And he rolls in there and suppresses it without even breaking a sweat. Young Henry VIII, like we always think of Henry VIII as being like that, like super fat guy, like chopping on a turkey leg or whatever. It's always a turkey leg, right? Sure. The the universal symbol for opulence. Yep. When he was young, he was like, he was cut. Really? Yeah. He was very athletic. He was known for being like extremely strong and a very good fighter. Interesting. Yeah. It's it's kind of unfair. To, I, I, they think he had actually like a medical issue that caused him to gain weight so quickly. Huh. Um, I, I'm sure all the rich food didn't help either. Of course. But uh, in any case, 
I have a question. Yeah. How did this misinformation get back to Thomas? We're not entirely sure. The The starting of his re- rebellion is a little bit shrouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. All we really know is that like his local parish priest was like, no, don't do this. And he's like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. That's about it. Huh. I think he saw it as a moment of convergence between weakness on the part of the English crown and opportunity on his own part. Right. Well, it makes sense to do what he did, given what he thought had happened. Mm-hmm. But, but even curious... without his father being dead, he's he's looking at, again, a, a, a king who had split from the Catholic Church. Yeah. And he was a devout Catholic. Yeah. Besides, the you know English direct control in Ireland had been waning for centuries. I mean, the, the number of people who actually spoke, you know, we talked about all of these, these lords going, you know, going native. Mm-hmm. There was a strip of the uh, east coast of Ireland, maybe a quarter of the coast, known as the Pale. And it was basically, you know, it, it contained Dublin. And uh, it was basically the only region where English was still spoken on the island. Everything else had kind of reverted to this very Irish kind of natural state of being. Yeah. Uh, this is actually where the, the phrase beyond the pale comes from. Oh, okay. It's this idea of actually going outside of the English controlled territory. Yeah. It's insanity. That's a stupid phrase then. It, it very much depends on perspective. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm biased. I, I completely understand. Don't worry. Once he put down the Fitzgerald uprising, he just kind of kept going. Henry VIII, I mean. Okay, yes. Rolled right over the island, uh, island and went, you know what? Um, I'm calling this the Kingdom of Ireland now. I'm establishing the Kingdom of Ireland, and guess who's the king? Him. Me, Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah. I'm the king. It's me. I'm the king. Which put it in an interesting position, because it's founded in 1542, but it's founded under a king who's just broken with the crown, or with the, with the papacy, so it's not officially recognized necessarily, because he's not necessarily recognized as, an, as a legitimate monarch by most of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some recognition by the Protestant states, because that's starting to be a thing. Mm-hmm. When, did, uh, when did Martin Luther do his biz? Uh, 1519, I And when say. did the Reformation start? Sorry? English Re- when, when did the English Reformation start? 1527. Okay, so not too long after. Not too long after. But the thing to remember is that the English Reformation was basically, I want to keep everything Catholic except I'm the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that some people don't realize about the English Reformation is that, you know, there's that from, from Henry. Then his son comes in, rules for a little while. He pushes things a little bit more Protestant. Then his daughter Mary comes in. She's Catholic. Mm. So the country becomes nominally Catholic again. People are getting a bit of whiplash in terms of like which church they're supposed to be supporting. Are we crossing over with our uh, Guy Fox episode here? Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> While Mary is queen, uh, the church recognizes the Kingdom of Ireland in 1555 because she's a Catholic queen. Yep. And then when Mary dies, Elizabeth takes over and she pushes the Catholic Church out of England almost forever. Right. We'll, we'll see occasional pops back up, but at that point the the church is kind of going oh shoot i wish we hadn't done that <laughs> the english conquest of the island i mean it didn't happen immediately under henry the eighth it took a while it took all, basically the rest of the century to put down the last of the um insurgent lords basically they were employing a tactic of visiting these people one-on-one and basically saying hey um i think you should swear fealty to me and be subject to the, the english crown and either they'd say like yeah okay well no we'll, we'll do that no problem and everyone would go, great, there's no problems here. Or else the Lord would say, no, I'm not doing that. And they'd go, okay, hang on just a minute. I'm going to get my army. <laughs> we'll take care of this. And anytime that happened, they would take them out and install a an English lord. Yeah. Someone who was still actually English. Yeah. And did they go native? Not as much. <laughs> okay. 
this all culminates in something known as the Nine Years' War, in which uh, Hugh O'Neill, uh, the second Earl of Tyrone, leads just kind of a final pushback against the English. This time he has support from the Spanish uh, Navy and the Spanish Army, but it's not really enough. So basically he offers Irish suzerainty to the Spanish crown. So he's Irish basically what? saying it's like a vassal state kind of thing. Okay. He's basically saying like yeah, we'll we'll be subject to the Spanish crown if you will just help us get rid of these English people. We want this so badly. The Spanish are going sure, we'll take Ireland. Yeah, no we'll problem. take that. The tactics used by the English against the Irish in this war are particularly harsh. There's a lot of burning crops and things along those lines right they don't really hold back at all and in 1602 at the battle of kinsale it's decisively over in favor of england ireland has been suppressed Mm -hmm. james the first is the king at this point and james the first and also fifth of scotland but yes both now yep stewart he offers actually pretty favorable terms to the insurgents the irish insurgents because they were broke mm. and they were just so happy to not deal with a rebellion anymore that they didn't want to put someone in a corner that would keep fighting back. Yeah. And so O'Neill actually retains his, his earlship, but is definitely given like a lot of terms in term in, in terms of like keeping him in check. Yeah. And you know, O'Neill stays and he's, he's going to kind of keep his head down. And James was relatively friendly towards Ireland in terms of, what needed to be in place for Catholic subjects to live under uh, an Anglican uh, monarch. James was used to this because coming from Scotland, he was used to ruling over people who were Presbyterian, which was the main Protestant uh, denomination in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he was already working with this balance of Presbyterian and Anglican. Right. uh, And he didn't see any reason that uh, Catholicism couldn't find a way to fit in there yeah there were some very obvious things that needed to be kept out for example he wasn't willing to allow catholic bishops to organize dioceses mm-hmm. um put all that back in place because that's a way that you could potentially subvert politically yeah uh the the order of too of, much organization yeah yeah exactly so basically as long as people were kind of practicing in secret yeah, he was kind of okay with it mm-hmm. and then 1605 comes along and this one we know all about because we spent a lot of time talking about it. Uh, the gunpowder plot is discovered. Yeah. To everyone's surprise, it's not an Irishman. <laughs> True. But it is a, a group of Catholic insurgents and they are English um, plotting to blow up Parliament. After the gunpowder plot, James couldn't let people just be Catholic. Right. He couldn't like just from a just from a, a policy perspective, that was no longer a tenable position. Mm-hmm. Problem is, James is also monarch over an entire island filled with devoutly Catholic people and lords who, when everyone in Britain was kind of nominally becoming Anglican mm-hmm. in order to kind of keep the peace, everyone in Ireland didn't really feel the need to necessarily do the same. Well, I mean, you're a landmass apart. Even that gives you some distance. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very like understandable literal. as to why they wouldn't. How do you enforce that? Yeah. Things are going to come to a head very shortly in terms of Catholic relations in Britain and Ireland. However, we're running a little bit long, so I think we'll take a quick break there. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what this means for the Irish people. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're back on HI 101 here with Phil Danny. 
Hello again. And we've been talking about the systemic oppression of an entire people. Yep. Uh, I need to get... You know what, man? I need like a real cheerful episode in here one time. <laughs> like the... Uh, what's the episode of Black Mirror that's very positive and it threw everybody off? Uh, I know which one you mean. I can't remember the title, though. Yeah. Sand something. Anyways. Anyways. That's what you need. You basically. Need one of those. Basically. I just need just a little like fun little one in there. It'll well, be I mean, good. Isn't that what April Fool's is for? I mean, those April episodes that are totally real and not fake? Ah, it's like 10 months away, man. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Yeah, that would be that would be nice to take a little break like that. <laughs> Anyways, what we're really looking at going on here. Oh, yeah, can... you did Black Death right before this one, right? I did. And before <laughs> that, New France, which involves, you know. New France. Well, yeah, everything that happens in New France. Uh-huh. Uh, Gary and I talked about some indigenous issues. I... Which... I saw it and I was like, yep, that's going to be, that's going to be a sad one. You know what? I, I'm, I'm very happy with the way we ended up handling it. That's good. Cause it's a, it's a tricky needle to thread, but you are not incorrect, but it, it turned out well. It's just like, can we do like, <laughs> I almost said the history of amusement parks, but that ended up pretty bad too. <laughs> yeah, I bet. No. <laughs> the history of comedy, probably also <laughs> terrible. Oh no. Dude, maybe I just picked a really bad topic to build, build a podcast around. <laughs> oh, man. Really what we're looking at in Ireland is the Catholic faith, which, while still being practiced by every strata of society, just becomes less and less uh, acceptable until finally the gunpowder plot makes it completely unrealistic for, yeah, completely unre unrealistic for the government to even support by omission yeah and they have to start cracking down now what had happened in england was that you could still practice catholicism if you were a noble if you were well connected enough and wealthy enough to do so in secret and have the right people look the other way how about that magna carta <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't say anything about it, it says that when you're charged with a crime you need to be held to the same standard of law. Yeah. Not that you can't bribe someone to not charge you with the crime <laughs> in the first place. Oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe well, they should have added a little addendum there. Dude, you put that in there and you've closed a loophole that has been in place for a very, very long time. <laughs> so that was certainly a thing in England. But in Ireland, the, the, the nobles basically went, no, I'm just going to keep practicing. This is fine. Yeah. They were kind of upset about the whole uh, coming along and, and raiding all the monasteries and driving out all the bishops thing. Um, they would sponsor uh, priests to come over from France and just do their do their thing. Yeah. They were fine with it. But it puts them in a kind of difficult position in that if anything ever really happens where they are noticed by the government or uh, wrong the government in any way, they're... It, have you ever heard the saying, if you're going to break the law, only break one at a time? No, but it's an interesting one. Well, I mean, the idea is if you're going to speed, yeah, you know, don't have something in the car you shouldn't. Okay, yep. I feel you. In any case, it's kind of like that. And, well, they were breaking a law by being Catholic, so you better not break another one. Mm -hmm. In 1607, Hugh O'Neill, who we had just been talking about as leading the, the rebellion in the Nine Years' War, he got into a bit of a land dispute. Just standard stuff. We don't really need to get into the details. Him and another landlord were disagreeing over where the the, the borders of some stuff lay. And again, classic land dispute. Super, super boring. Yeah. Normally, what you would do in that case is go to London and have your case heard. Mm -hmm. 
as a noble, he had the right to have a hearing in the House of Lords. So O'Neill's looking at this and going, okay, I'm never going to win this case. Like, best case, if I go to London, they're going to say no. And then he thinks about that and takes it to his conclusion, which is, I don't really have the power that I ostensibly should have that goes along with my title. Yeah. I don't really, like, I'm not really a noble anymore because any of the any of the privileges afforded to me as a noble i can't count on them just because i'm catholic and he went okay i don't think ireland's the place for me anymore Mm. and him uh, another fairly high up noble and about 90 of their followers just went you know what we're going to europe we're going to find us a a good Catholic country to settle down in and we'll just live our lives in peace instead of dealing with this harassment that we're getting from the English government. Because there were even proactively people coming around looking for priests and trying to make sure that no one is taking communion and things like that. Wow. Uh, it was a weird time. So they just left. Uh, this is a this is a moment in history known as the Flight of the Earls. Um, of the what? The Flight of the Earls. Okay. James looked at this, declared the actions as treasonous because they're nobles and they're you know defecting basically defecting yeah whether or not it's actually a treasonous act is kind of it's it's a sticky thing but it's well within his power to declare it treasonous it's kind of kind of his bag yeah he gets to decide that and so he decided that because they fled they had legally forfeited their lands and so he sold off their titles to wealthy english merchants Mm. O'Neill and his followers were all from the furthest north part of Ireland. It's uh, uh, It was known as Ulster at the time. And the people that came in to take, take their places weren't necessarily of noble birth themselves. Mainly they were purchasing titles. This was seen as kind of an opportunity into the upper class. Yeah. And a lot of the people who were buying titles were actually Scottish merchants, uh, Presbyterian merchants. Okay. Who were not super well loved by the Church of England, but who were definitely in a better position than the Catholics. Yeah. And the real distinction there is the papacy itself, which is considered an outside power by the Church of England. Mm -hmm. Anyone who is Catholic is subject to uh, a power that is not, that is, that is outside the structure of the English crown. Yeah. So the Presbyterian Scottish wouldn't have that issue, but the Catholic Irish would. Yes. Correct. Specific laws are created against the Catholics uh, at this point in time. Oh, by, by the way, these this this influx of, of new lords is known as the Plantation of Ulster, and it was very, very deliberate. They mm. could have given these titles away to other Irish noblemen, but they were hoping that by implanting these, uh, these English and Scottish lords in the north of Ireland, as well as a lot of English and Scottish settlers to go along with them, that there would be sort of a, a, a slow cultural assimilation by proxy. Can I make a prediction? Yes. There was no slow cultural assimilation assimilation by proxy. Um, it's just more complicated than that. In general, uh, no. Uh, that, that would be a, a generally accurate uh, observation or prediction. I think one listening to this could guess why, even if they didn't know how this story ends. Yeah. Because they've heard how the story began mm-hmm. with some English folk yeah. in Ireland yeah. saying, this Irish stuff is kind of cool. Right. And as you said, and as the saying goes, going native. Yeah. I, I can only imagine that just keeps happening. 
again, it's it's a little more complicated than that, especially because now there is a vested English interest in Ireland. True. Because they're not just hanging out doing their own thing over there. They are considered enemies of the state in a lot of ways or, or uh, have the potential to become very strong enemies of the state. Their concern is that, like, again, we're, we're talking about the 17th century here, and they're concerned about someone who is asked to choose between their monarch and their pope. Yeah. And I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that at least a, a, a sizable portion of people faced with that quandary will go with Pope over King. Especially considering their history with the King. Exactly. I mean, the, the Nine Years' War had left some cultural scars. Yeah. So what, what that results in is a lot of new lords in North Ireland that, or I should say in Ulster more accurately, that aren't really interesting in, interested in becoming Catholic because that's how they got these uh, lordships in the first place was mm -hmm. because some Catholics got, got the boot or fled, as the case may be. And they saw that as a as a quick path to losing the lordship that they had just very dearly purchased from the crown. Fair enough. That and people don't tend to change their religion that easily. Yeah, that's just kind of a fact of life. The way you know the, the religion you're born into tends to be the one that you stick with. Mm -hmm. So, in general, what you're going to start seeing here, rather than going native, is actually a divide between Ulster and the rest of Ireland culturally and religiously. Mm. Specific laws are created against Catholics at this point in time. There's restrictions on who can be uh, members of the, the military at this point in time. The idea being that they don't necessarily want Catholics trained in the art of war. Yeah, okay. Or holding uh, weapons of any sort. And there's other ones about who can who can hold public office, who can vote. The, the way that they determine some of this stuff is, is what's known as a test law, which is that in order to hold public office, you have to take an oath which contains specific clauses that if you were to utter it aloud and if you were a devout Catholic, it would basically be a mortal sin. Wow. So you have to, as part of your oath of becoming a, a government official, um, deny transubstantiation in the Eucharist, for example. I mean, part of me is impressed with how clever something like that is. Mm -hmm. The other part of me is infuriated at the subjugation going on here. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a I think that's a reasonable reaction. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah, it's it's harsh. It's really really difficult, and and in a lot of ways it is arbitrary because other than the Nine Years' War, in which the Irish were really on the defensive, um, they were they were pushing back against a, a an invading force. They really haven't been a problem for the English. Yeah, they've been very content to kind of hang out and do their own thing. That's the thing about. Anytime we really talk about a, a, an oppressed people, though, a lot of times what you'll notice is that the actions of the oppressors don't necessarily reflect the reality of the situation so much as they reflect their own fears of what that oppressed people might do to them if the positions were reversed. Yeah. They're imagining what they would do to these oppressed people and then imagining the oppressed people doing that to them and reacting to that sort of fantasy construct. It almost seems like a negative feedback loop. Very much so. Yeah. I would imagine it's quite stressful to be in that position. Yeah. And I'm not saying that with any particular sympathy, but they are imagining a regime under which the Catholic Church, who has renounced the English crown for splitting with it, was holding all of the power and that they, as members of the Anglican Church, would be subject to that power. Yeah. 
and that terrifies them because specifically because of the way they've treated the catholics up to this point it's an odd little loop Mm -hmm. and it always starts in something very concrete and kind of spirals out from there and again that's uh that's not unique to this situation yeah this is this sounds familiar this is a type of analysis you can apply to uh, uh countless other somewhat similar situations yeah but moving on revolt did break out against all of these laws that were being put in place imagine that yeah uh broke out in 1641 specifically and initially were incredibly successful mainly because the english civil war was going on right now and they didn't have the time and resources to focus on ireland what was the english civil war um again a very complicated story yeah the the main thrust of it being that the uh king at the time was showing some catholic sympathies Mm. um which was great for ireland and uh terrified the nation because they had been running on the premise of catholic uh, catholicism as the worst evil uh for some time now and it actually ended up in the the king charles the first uh being beheaded wow uh yeah um so he was overthrown england was technically a republic for a short time and then something that wasn't a kingdom but definitely was a kingdom under the <laughs> lord protector oliver cromwell whose name i'm sure you've heard i have oliver cromwell is a very complicated historical figure but because we're talking about irish history we're just gonna call him like a pretty bad guy <laughs> he was not kind to ireland okay he had some he had some wins in his column for sure <laughs> Uh, but but Ireland wasn't necessarily one of them. Once uh, things had kind of settled down after the war and he was well in charge, Cromwell went, ah, oh, those Irish are getting uppity. We, we need to do something about this. And he reinvaded Ireland uh, in a campaign that lasted about 40 years between 1649 and 1653, which were noted for their absolute brutality. There was a lot of slaughtering of civilians as well as uh, armed uprisers, which is really, really awful. And if you were to ask someone today in ireland what they thought of oliver cromwell um i mean i probably just wouldn't actually yeah is is the way i'll end that sentence yeah they won't have kind things to say why do you think i swear so much that's where the (laughs) heritage is cromwell had all land owned by known catholics confiscated and given to english landowners so all of those lords who had kind of been squeaking by just on keeping their heads down they were out this isn't gonna end well as many as a third of the population of Ireland was killed during this campaign, either through direct violence or as a consequence of the famine that came about through these actions. I mean, war is always disruptive in kind of unexpected ways. Throws off the harvest. This is a problem. Yeah. It was very, very bad for the Irish people. It's crazy when you hear numbers like that, like mm-hmm. a, th- a third of a population. Yes. Yep. And it's something. Think about that. Think about that. Oh, just wait until you get to the Black Death episode, I know. dude. But like this, this, this caught me in uh, smallpox too. Yeah, you said like one in ten at some point. I think was one of the numbers. Mm-hmm. It's like I know ten people. I know a lot of tens of people. There's, there's and you a, pick one of each one from each of those groups. Yeah, there's a seg- there's a segment in the Black Death when we talk about fifty uh, percent was <sighs> was one of the numbers, and it's kind of like okay, well, like the. The That's thought experiment. <laughs> the thought. The thought experiment I proposed was take a list of every person you know and flip a coin. Yeah. And my comments at the time was I I, I can't even yeah I can't even do that and it's it's purely theoretical. Yeah. It's it's really hard to digest numbers of this scale. Yeah. It becomes much much bigger than us, and at that point it becomes a little bit like it's it, it becomes so 
overwhelming that you kind of just detach from it completely and it yeah. loses all human context sure. and that's really uh, a difficult thing to kind of keep in mind as you're going through this but also very important once Cromwell was overthrown and and Charles II uh, was restored to the English crown some of the land was returned or at least compensated for mm-hmm. but I mean it never really it was never really at the same level as it ever was before Cromwell Um, This was really the end of Catholic land ownership in Ireland. Mind you, the population was still overwhelmingly Catholic. It just meant that everyone that was in charge in any way, shape, and form was Protestant. In 1688, uh, there's going to be another revolution in England. Mm -hmm. I am reflecting on what I said about the English Civil War. I think it wasn't because Charles I was Catholic. I think it was because... Uh, of of parliamentary disputes okay i totally misspoke and somebody is already writing me a <laughs> correction email and they can just go ahead and hit delete on that bad boy because <laughs> charles the first was because he was i'm i'm gonna forget specifics but he uh was refusing to call parliament um and there was a dispute between the amount of real political power between the crown and and the government the the parliamentary government okay um and so Basically, the parliament went rogue, held their own sessions, and voted to overthrow the king. It's it's very interesting stuff. Uh, no, the, the Catholic sympathizer was James II uh, in 1688, and he was overthrown again by parliament, um, who this time, instead of trying to just abolish the monarchy, which is kind of their move in the English Civil War, uh, this time they brought in William of Orange, who was kind of down the line of succession. Okay. Um, but uh, they they brought him in and basically said you should be king now please, uh, <laughs> and it worked. He he was he was made king. The Irish had been fighting for James, the Catholic sympathizer, sympathizer throughout this restoration. So Stands to reason, once again they were just fighting on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. If James had stayed in power, it's quite possible that things might have started turning around for the Irish. But that's not the story we're telling today. The Irish kept fighting for James until 1691 before they were completely knuckled under once again by the English army. Yep. You know, this is this is the end of any of the the secret Catholic lords that were left, which there were very few at this point in time, but they were all gone now. And uh the the penal laws were put back in place, like all the all the laws against being Catholic during the restoration or sorry, during the uh, the glorious revolution, Catholic land ownership fell from 14% to 5% in Ireland. Wow. Only 5% of the land in Ireland was owned by Catholics. How much of the population was Catholic? The vast majority. I think the numbers are somewhere around 75%. 5%, 75%. That's the way these splits tend to work. Mm-hmm. This is the beginning of a period known as the Protestant Ascendancy. Okay. Catholics, again, barred, barred from owning land, any political power whatsoever. Presbyterians in Ulster were allowed to own land and they could own businesses, which Catholics could not do. Okay. Um, but the Presbyterians could not vote. You had to be a member of the Anglican Church to vote. Wow. Or to hold a government office. It was actually known as the Church of Ireland. The Church of Ireland was a parallel Church of England. The head is still the English monarch. Really? It's a, it's a again, very technical point, but... Once again, you also see Ireland kind of being run as this parallel, but also lesser than yeah. kingdom. Just just keep that foot firmly planted Yeah, on the throat of Ireland. We're talking about the late 17th, early 18th century here. At this point in time, Ireland is basically deforested. Really? The Navy needs ships, man. Wow. What are they going to do? Get rid of English forests? <laughs> yeah. 
and this is really the kind of mindset that develops about Ireland. It becomes just another colony. Yeah. And they use, you know, North America this way, but North America is massive. And I'm not saying it's necessarily great to deforest places. Sure. But, you know, the number of European settlers was very low and the English never particularly cared about the indigenous population. So they didn't see it as much of a problem. This was a place where people actually lived. Yeah. Colonization in this era is very much like a, a, an economic system. Um, I've said it before on other shows, but colonies aren't just little baby countries that you raise until they're ready to go off on their own. They are geographic areas that you exploit as mercilessly as possible to make as much money and gain as many resources as you can. And anyone who happens to be in those colonies is either a part of that machinery or ground up by it. Yeah. And a different way to phrase that. Yeah, I know you do, Phil. <laughs> it's a family podcast. Yep. <laughs> the economy was turned almost exclusively to providing uh, beef and dairy to England. Okay. Which is great for the people who actually own the beef and dairy farms. Who are not Catholic. Who are not Catholic. They're actually like supporting the like salted beef being purchased by the Navy in vast quantities. Okay. Mainly through the city of Cork, actually. That's the main hub that it's going out through. The problem with raising a lot of livestock and a lot of cash crops is that if you're not the one owning the cash crops, it's not really helping you out that much. And when you have that much food kind of flowing out of the country mm -hmm. and not that much land available to people to own for themselves in order to, order to provide for themselves, then the only real way that they have of feeding themselves is with the limited wages that they can scrape together. Right. Increasingly, landowners uh, stopped living in Ireland. They would just live in England okay. and collect rent from the, the landholders. Mm -hmm. And so there was a, a real disconnect between what the actual people living in Ireland and working on the land actually needed and what the landowners actually wanted. And it's the, this commodification of, of the, the land and of the people that starts really doing a number on the population of Ireland as if they haven't had enough going on so far. What little parliament was still left in place was entirely run by corrupt officials who were using it to line their own pockets. They actually had very little direct political power. Sorry, is this an English parliament or an Irish parliament? An Irish parliament. Okay. Very little direct political power. They were completely answering to Britain. And uh, other than that, mostly just taking bribes. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a position known as the as a viceroy, which is kind of like a governor. It was appointed by the crown, meant to oversee the entirety of the island. But even a viceroy didn't tend to live in Dublin. He would live back in London and kind of deputize people over. It was pretty bad. The people were essentially serfs. Their conditions were very tenuous, as we're going to see very shortly. And anyone who could do anything about it was completely unwilling to do so because they were more interested in their, their own wealth than they were necessarily in the well-being of any of their countrymen because they kind of weren't their countrymen. How long ago was surf, serfdom a thing in England? Oh, in the rest of England? Yeah. yeah, that had disappeared in like the 14th century. Yeah, so like 300 years ago? Yeah. Three, four hundred years ago. Yeah, it mainly disappeared actually with the uh, with the plague, yeah. um, because uh, it increased mobility for peasants, and, and basically they were no longer locked to uh, their feudal lords anymore. This kind of reversed that process in Ireland. Hmm. The uh, the landlords would take land parcels and split them, 
so that they could rent more parcels of land for more money, but smaller parcels of land so they were less productive. Good old capitalism. Good old capitalism. Then in 1740, uh, something occurs known as the Great Famine. Mm -hmm. Is this the one? It's not the one, but it is a one. Okay. Uh, And the, the potatoes are actually affected in this one, but the diet of the irish people is more diverse at this point in time Mm -hmm. than it will be in the the 19th century one okay yes 19th century Mm -hmm. this famine killed nearly 40 percent of the residents of ireland this one was a perfect storm of extremely cold weather impoverished conditions so 40 percent 40 percent it was cold enough that the potatoes were freezing i don't know if you know much about this but if a potato freezes it basically turns to goo really yeah it's not good for them. Okay. Don't freeze your potatoes. Noted. I mean, potatoes are a really hearty food source. They're, they're actually a really good food source. If you eat a potato with the skin on it, it contains basically all the vitamins and minerals you need for a day. Mm-hmm. It's a very complete food source. The other nice thing is they're kind of, they're, they're fairly easy to grow in a concentrated area. Like, considering the conditions of someone in 18th century Ireland, a potato can keep you going for a full day, no problem. Yeah. That's that's a decent amount of food. I've seen The Martian. Sure. Yeah, well, I, that's, that's, that's based a, in science. actually a, a great point. Yeah. Um, no, potatoes grow in a, in a small area, yeah. and they can support a lot of people off of that small area. Something conversely like uh, wheat is really good if you've got a lot of it. But the processing for that to become a useful food is very labor-intensive and very time-intensive. Yeah. You need a lot of wheat to harvest, grind into flour, make into bread. That takes a lot of work for the amount of food you get out of it. And yeah, uh, bread is a really good food source, but it's not reasonable for a single person on a small parcel of land to grow enough wheat to support themselves and their family. They can grow enough potatoes to do that. Subsistence farming is... A subject that a lot of people don't really consider and it's kind of odd because the vast majority of all of our ancestors did exactly that for almost all of our history hmm. yeah and that, that's the term for farming for your own survival subsistence farming yeah, yeah. and that's where you have a, a small farm you might have a couple of animals and uh, you might have a cash crop that you sell off and you know that's the thing that in 30 years might pay off the uh, the plow that you have, uh, you know, loans from some sort of uh, loan shark. Yeah. But you also have a plot with beans and potatoes and things that will actually carry you through the the winter. That's why you see so many, like, root vegetables being so popular with right. the, the lower cl- classes at this point. You can grow turnips and yams and potatoes in a fairly small uh, area, and they keep really easily. You just need to keep them dry. Yeah. As long as they stay dry and cool, they're fine. But if they get wet or if they get frozen, they're done. All right. Today I learned. Yeah. Again, it's 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 weird because, like I said, most of us uh, that's that's what our ancestors did just for their entire lives. This idea of kind of scraping it all together year after year, just hoping that the harvest is good enough to get you through. It's a it's a rough way to do it. No kidding. There's massive humanitarian efforts in place to try and stem this disaster including by the English government, uh, including internationally people sending food or money to buy food to try and keep this famine under control. And they still lost 40% of people. However, at the same time as this was happening, there's still beef being sold to the the Royal Navy. Mm -hmm. This famine isn't going to be as bad as the, the famine. 
but it's still pretty bad and it still really highlights the inequality between Ireland and Britain at this point in time because there was food there and they're selling it yeah and people are starving it's it's kind of an odd thing to be in a place where there's a surplus of food and people are starving yeah again something to keep in mind uh in in many contexts a lot of times famines are somewhat artificial in nature Mm -hmm. it's uh it's rarely just uh uh, strictly a lack of food in this case the the uh cold weather and uh less than ideal growing conditions had a significant impact on it and it was mitigated by aid but you know at the end of the day there was there was still food that was leaving the country rather than being eaten by the irish people there were measures that were put in place to try and Basically, the grain couldn't leave the country unless it was going to Britain. It couldn't be sold anywhere else in the world. That mm-hmm. was about the the extent of the measures that were put in place to try and keep food within the country. But obviously, that was not even close to enough. Some movement toward an Irish nationalist movement starts happening at this point. How shocking. Yeah, I, I wonder why. Couldn't, couldn't see that one coming. They're restricted to secret meetings for obvious reasons because a lot of times they're they're actually uh linked by religion uh, as much as by nationality and so yeah. it would be it would be uh through those same circles that they're starting to organize a little bit and the the pet projects that they're working on i, I say as if i'm dismissing them or something uh are, are things like hey uh please don't hike the weight uh, the, the the rent so much we can't afford it yeah or hey can we please make it like a little bit harder to evict us because right now you can just say hey get off my land or i'm gonna shoot you and that's fine you know, luxuries like that. This is obscene. Like, I know I'm reacting to this a little stronger than normal, but it's because it's something that is so close to my heritage that I didn't really know about. Like, I knew it was bad. Mm. I didn't know it was this bad. Well, we, we kind of get this impression of the Irish as being on the inside the same circle as the, the rest of Britain. Yeah. And, you know, it's Britain and Ireland together. United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. Yeah. And that's not really an accurate depiction. No. I have a question. Mm -hmm. The, this Irish nationalism that's sort of taking Mm -hmm. place now. Yep. That's linked through Catholicism still? Largely, but it's also, it's also political. It's, it's both. How, how is Catholicism still surviving? Again, they're still bringing priests in from France, basically. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, and the English uh, haven't been able to prevent that? or France and Britain are very close together. Yeah, you're not wrong. I think people sometimes forget just how narrow the English Channel can be at its narrowest. And even getting directly from France to Ireland isn't a terribly daunting journey, especially for the 18th century. Yeah. So, yeah, they just secreted them across. And I mean... Uh, who's going to keep them out all the irish border officials that are (laughs) super committed to keeping them out yeah no then we get something really interesting which is someone who wants to do good oh in 1767 a man named george townsend comes into power as viceroy strong reformer believed that this whole using your parliamentary position for personal gain no good Let's get everybody on the straight and narrow. Let's actually try and figure out some sort of good government here. Mm-hmm. Real revolutionary. He centralized power in Dublin in order to kind of keep a closer eye on everybody, which had its strengths and weaknesses. It cleared house on all of these kind of corrupt officials, yeah, but was seen as kind of a a power move by a lot of the 
residents of Ireland. Okay. Um, rather than having this more sort of spread out parliamentary system, he's concentrating power in, in just Dublin, mm-hmm. which is a very English city at this point in time. And it was worried that there was going to be some sort of uh, stronger play after this. The uh, the system that Townsend sets up is known as the Castle Party, like the political party that comes out of it. Okay. So people who align with his sort of centralist, responsible uh, government ideals are are lumped in under the Castle Party, uh, named after like he actually lived in Dublin, which was unusual for a viceroy. Okay. And there's a there's a castle in Dublin that this is named after, but as often happens in these cases, a uh, uh, party was organized in response known as the Patriot Party. Oh, good. Um, political parties always have just the best names. The uh, The leader uh, of the, the Patriot Party was a man named uh, Henry Gratton, and he uh, opposed government centralization, thought it was a real bad idea, and kind of rode this wave of, of um, Irish nationalist sentiment to power. He was interested in instituting things like trade reforms. Let's not give away all of our food for a song. Um, military reforms. Who's actually part of our military right now? Because up until now, it's been British re- uh, Redcoats, which isn't exactly representative of, of Ireland and kind of feels like an oppressive force. A little bit. And he starts pushing these things through. And the context for this, obviously, is the um, is the the issues that Britain is having in the colonies. This is the American Revolution period we're talking about. Yeah. And George the Third is kind of figuring out that if you don't sometimes give the colonies a little bit of what they want, they yeah. get very upset, do something rash. So Croton gets a, a, a military put in place that is an Irish military. He manages to take tariffs off of selling to Britain. There was like a massive trade tariff on the Irish goods that were being sold to England at this really? point in time. Yeah. Oh boy. So that was removed to try and take some of the pressure off of you know, the few uh, actual Irish landowners that there were, but also take economic pressure off because it's not like they were paying those tariffs. They were passing those along to their, uh, to their workers. Yeah. And finally, he actually managed to get England to agree to an independent Irish parliament. This is what's known as home rule. And it's going to be kind of the gold standard for what Ireland is looking for in this deal for quite some time. Mm-hmm. It's conceded by London basically because they don't want another revolution on their hands. They just can't handle it right now. A constitution is created in 1782 confirming this home rule, as well as some of the other reforms that we've been talking about, just kind of uh, making them official, making it something that isn't just a handshake deal, which Ireland has had enough of with London, that they aren't really interested in another one they wanted in writing this time. Yeah. And they want a receipt. And there's this movement of people who are, are slowly pushing for these reforms. Like, let's let's just get a, a native Irish militia in place. Next, we can talk about the next step. Let's, you know, let's work on free trade with Britain. Then we can start looking at maybe getting some of these religious laws revoked, things like that. Yeah, so they're kind of just wearing them down piece by piece. Yeah, and, and, and trying a nonviolent uh, approach to this resistance. How long does that last? Until 1793. <laughs> See, How's that for a segue? <laughs> that wasn't planned. <laughs> this little thing happens across the English Channel known as the French Revolution. Oh, yeah. Little thing? You might have heard of it. Yeah. I mean, by 1793, these little progressions had, had resulted in Catholics being able to buy land, Catholics being able to vote, Catholics being able to sit on juries. They still can't have a hold power yet, but these are some significant 
uh, advances for yeah. Catholics in Ireland. But then the French Revolution kind of gets them all hungry for change, a little bit hot and bothered. Yeah. And they figure, hey, why not us? <laughs> Those little sort of secret societies that we've been talking about that would usually focus on sort of one pet issue yeah. um, and try and do something about it. One of these came up called the Society of the United Irishmen. But it quickly radicalized from, hey, let's push on this uh, this small issue to let's overthrow the British. We're going to do it. We're going to go full independent. That escalated. We're going to get French support to do this. It's going to be awesome. And here's the thing. By 1798, uh, so only five years later, they have 200,000 members. Wow. It gained traction very quickly. I wonder why. You know, the, the French Revolution had this huge uh, domino effect in, in like, a lot of places that you wouldn't necessarily expect yeah and things like nationalist movements in a number of countries are are one of them and it's one of the reasons that france was fought against so passionately by some of these other monarchies at that time if the french monarchy one of the most powerful and oldest monarchies in the in europe can be overthrown and become a republic in the matter of months you know what, what could happen, happen to us yeah the society of united irishmen is led by a man named wolf tone okay so like come on <laughs> that's only slightly intimidating there was a group uh of loyalists that organized against the united irishmen so there was a bit of a it's not quite a full-blown civil war here but you know there is fighting in the streets there is political demonstration and clashes and sometimes it gets violent the church decided not to support the united irishmen they couldn't support rebellion and the United Irishmen had been counting on that support. The British responded pretty quickly by imposing martial law, using spies to identify leaders in the network, and neutralizing a bunch of them in like uh, uh, raids. Yeah. Uh, so take out a bunch of them all at once. And it was very, very effective at limiting how much uh, real political damage the United Irishmen could do. So while it definitely came up, everything kind of ground to a halt in October of 1798. Wolf Tone had been in France trying to gather support, gather mm -hmm. as much support as he could. They were kind of busy with their own stuff at that point in time. Understood. However, he managed to get 3,000 French troops together sailing to Ireland. And he was going to land with them and start a resistance. They never made it to shore. Don't mess with the Royal Navy. I was just going to say, have you heard maybe a thing or two about the British Navy before? Tone asked for a firing squad. He was captured. He was obviously found guilty of treason. Clearly. Asked for a, f a firing squad and was denied it. A firing squad is seen as a, an execution for someone with honor. Mm -hmm. um, he was sentenced to hang. This is the part that confuses me the most. Before they could hang him, uh, he slit his own throat and then died a week later. That Yeah, that uh, look on your face right there. That's the one I'm talking about. Okay. Is his name just cool enough to keep him alive for an entire week? I don't know. <laughs> I assume he just botched the job and, and it yeah. took him a while to die of blood Succumbed loss. to his wounds. This whole rebellion is put down, but it's decided that this isn't really quite enough to deal with this whole Ireland problem. England is in the middle of, or sorry, Britain at this point in time is in a war with, uh, with France for the soul of Europe as they see it. Yeah. And they just don't have time to deal with another Irish uprising. And so in what is known as the Acts of Union of 1800, uh, both the British and Irish parliaments voted to create what is properly known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Mm -hmm. 
abolishing the Irish Parliament, dissolving it completely. From now on, the uh, uh, everything, uh, the, the governance of Ireland will take place from London. You know, it's they're concerned that independent Irish Parliament would fight for independence of the country. They're concerned that enfranchised Catholics would be angry about the oppression that they've suffered. They, uh, you know, a lot of very reasonable concerns here. I will note that this is what created the Union Jack as we know it today. Yes, I'm aware of this. Mm-hmm. The uh, diagonal red stripes, uh, the, the small red stripes, uh, weren't there uh, before this. Mm-hmm. It, it was just the, the flags of England, which is the, the red St. George's Cross, and the Scottish flag, the blue, with yep. the white X through it. I forget what it's called, but anyways, it was just those two. So it, it's interesting to look up a picture. It just looks wrong um, until you add in the uh, the Irish flag as well. Yeah. And with that, Ireland is kind of the most subjugated that it has ever been. They've had multiple failed rebellions. They've had multiple wars in which they've just chosen the wrong side. They've had uh, religious laws leveled against them. They've become, uh, for all intents and purposes, serfs to Protestant landowners. Uh, They're destitute. They are working uh, to scrape a living together while sending the bounties of Ireland off to mainly Britain. Things are looking rough. Yeah. I'm going to end it here, and I can see in your face that you knew that I was going to end it here. I can tell. <laughs> I think this is a really great place to stop and just let everybody just really reflect on, on how badly Ireland's been treated here. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. It's really important. It's very, very important for us to think about because, again, this this story of, of what it means to be just constantly oppressed is is a... Uh, an unfortunately common one and just a story that just doesn't get told a lot yeah so it's going to be a while before anything really turns around too much and when we pick it up uh you know things things are going to be bad for a while yet but figure we could probably use a little bit of a breather yeah sounds good all right we'll uh we'll leave it there The Acts of Union of 1801 represented the lowest level of autonomy Ireland had enjoyed since the Norman invasions of the 12th century. But improbably, this isn't even the worst position they'll be in before the end of this story. Next time, we'll talk about the effects governance from London had on Ireland, most notably in the form of the Great Famine. That episode will be up on July 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. (laughs) 